This is They Create Worlds, episode 128, Nintendo in 1985. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, a happy holiday season to everyone far and near, as we all laid hunkered down as COVID drew near. (laughs) Something like that, yeah. It's a weird holiday season to be sure, but at least we still have podcasts. Thumbs up sign. Nice thing about podcast is you don't have to go outside for it. You don't even have to go to your local grocery store. You just need whatever it is you're listening to this on. Your phone, your computer, that nice thing down the street. That loud, blaring speaker I put on top of the Christmas tree for some crazy reason. Since we're having a fun holiday time, I'm going to remiss back in the days of a long, long ago when I was a mere four years old and I saw this thing called Nintendo at my cousin's place. And I sat bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as they played things like Mario and Zelda. Back before we had speedruns, people breaking games in horrible ways, the great gaming culture that we have and enjoy today. But no, it's all there in a bunch of little black boxes. Yes, though uh, we're going to go back even a little further than when little Jeffrey first saw an NES, before Legend of Zelda was even a thing. Last year, we did a very special Christmas episode that was kind of a downer Christmas episode because it was about the game that ruined Christmas. Good old-fashioned E.T. I don't think it's going to become a tradition that we do a holiday story every Christmas just because I don't think we have enough interesting holiday stories to keep that momentum going for the many, many years to come that we hope to uh, continue doing this podcast. We did feel that it would make sense to counterbalance last year's depressing holiday story with a nice, happy holiday story, which was the test market launch in the United States, in North America, of this newfangled Nintendo Entertainment System. Complete with robs and everything. It is not a video game system. It is an entertainment system. Exactly. It clearly says so on the box. It has a robot and everything. I'm controlling a toy that has a robot. Sort of kind of plays games. We don't know. And no one's going to get like that. But the robot's really cool. (laughs) Right. Uh, So, of course, this was coming at a time when the market was falling apart. And so there were some marketing techniques that they used, which, of course, we'll get into more as the episode goes on. We've talked about Nintendo before, of course. We've done history episodes. We've done a console war episode. We've talked about how they brought the system to North America and helped bring this market back after the crash. So some of this, in that sense, will be review. We are going to go really in-depth on it this time. We're going to get into the nuts and bolts about how this entire thing played out. People that have read the uh, classic book Game Over by David Sheff on the history of Nintendo, primarily in the United States, but also some coverage of Japan— will recognize the broad outlines of the story we're about to tell because that was kind of the first place where that story was really told in any kind of depth. However, 
as wonderful as David Chef could be, as we discussed in our episode talking about early video game history books, he was really good at providing the broad strokes, but he often got little details wrong. While the framework of the story that we're going to be telling is going to be very similar to the story Chef told, it's been refined by other sources, both other researchers that have looked into this, such as Blake Harris when he was doing Console War, as well as my own in-depth interviews with Bruce Lowry and Gail Tilden, who were both very involved in the launch. So we're going to kind of take that Game Over framework, use that as our base, but really kind of explain some of the places where that common narrative, and Game Over really has become the common narrative, I think, of this period of Nintendo history, went wrong and give a greater understanding of exactly how this went down, because it, it truly is a fascinating and landmark story in the history of video games, and uh, it happened just in time for the holidays, Christmas Miracle. We know the history of Nintendo, so we don't have to cover that. We know a bit about the launch and obviously some of the inaccuracies that's brought up in Blake Harris's book. Where do you want to start off? Do you want to start off right at the Christmas season where they go, hey, New York, here's this wonderful game console. <laughs> I mean, entertainment system. Why don't we play it everywhere? And all the little kids will want it for Miracle on 34th Street. <laughs> well, we do have to give a small amount of background, not on Nintendo's history. As you said, we've covered that. But we have to discuss a little bit the Famicom system, uh, the system that, of course, became the NES in the United States, and about Nintendo's previous efforts to expand that system into a larger market, how that kind of ran afoul of the crash. We won't take a long time on this, but just to set the tone, we have to remember that the system released in Japan in 1983. It did pretty well in 1983. They had a bit of a scare because they had a defective chipset that would cause freezes in very specific instances. It wasn't like an Xbox Red Ring of Death where half their customer base was going to come across this console-breaking problem. It wasn't quite as serious as that, but they still felt that they had to do something about it, and so they actually did a full recall and replaced the defective parts for everybody. Didn't someone burn the midnight oil for, like, weeks or maybe even a month to solve whatever the little bug was? Might have been, might have been. Don't remember off the top of my head, but yeah, I mean, they definitely handled it very differently than Microsoft would handle the Red Ring of Death. I mean, they finally came around. They spent a long time denying it before they finally started fixing it. And Nintendo, even though this was a very specific freeze that only happened under very specific circumstances, they got right on top of it. So that slowed them down a little bit, but they still had a pretty good 1983. They had a fantastic 1984. Namco did a port of their arcade game Xevious, which, as we've talked about before on the show, was never much of a hit in the U.S. just because it came out right when the arcade market was slowing. But it was a phenomenal, definitive hit in Japan. And so uh, Namco bringing Xevious to the system really picked it up. Nintendo is just going great guns in Japan. In the meantime, Hiroshi Amuchi definitely has ambitions to expand that system abroad, and particularly into the very lucrative U.S. market. They do enter into negotiations with Atari. This has been talked about in a couple of places. Some sources claim that they were closer to a deal. Some sources claim they weren't nearly that close to a deal. It's definitely true that throughout early 1983, there were negotiations to bring the Nintendo Entertainment System to the United States under the Atari name. Nintendo would have provided the hardware and the games. 
Atari would have been able to repackage those, I believe, in their own form factor, certainly using their own packaging, and present it as an Atari system, and there would be terms on how many systems Atari could order and how much they'd pay and how much profit Nintendo would get. You know, they were negotiating the numbers on this thing. And then a couple of things happened. First of all, there was a bit of a kerfluffle because Nintendo was working with both Atari and Coleco. Of course, we did our ColecoVision episode just a few short weeks ago. We may recall that Nintendo ended up licensing Donkey Kong for home consoles to Coleco despite a last-ditch effort by Atari to snatch those very same rights. Even though Atari was unsuccessful in acquiring those console rights, they were successful in obtaining the rights to Donkey Kong for disc-based computer platforms. However, at this time, Coleco was working on their Atom system, which, of course, we are also talked about, their home computer. That was a cartridge-based computer, primarily. It had a cartridge slot. It also had a particular type of disk drive that wasn't quite a traditional disk drive. But I think Coleco felt that because it wasn't a traditional disk-based system, because it did play cartridges, etc., that they were in the clear to use Donkey Kong on the Coleco Atom as well. So they came to CES in June 1983 with the Atom. Donkey Kong was one of the products that they were showing off. Atari was not happy. Atari was like, we bought these computer rights, these home computer rights to Donkey Kong. They can't do this. Fix this right now. And until you do, we are not having any more discussion whatsoever on your little Famicom system and bringing it to the U.S. There was a meeting. It's described in Game Over. Game Over may dramatize it a little bit. In that version of it, Arnold Greenberg is summoned to see Yamauchi. Arnold Greenberg, we may remember, being the CEO of Coleco. Yamauchi goes, to use the technical term, ape shit. He does this big theatrical, and it really is meant to be theatrical, this big theatrical tirade, all in Japanese, punctuated with very strident, very aggressive gesturing, where he basically says, fix this. Get this off your system. You do not have these rights. I have talked to Arnold Greenberg. Greenberg doesn't remember a dramatic confrontation with Yamauchi. Not that they never had a meeting, but he doesn't remember fireworks. I also talked to Al Khan, who was the VP of licensing at Coleco. Al Khan says that he does remember a very animated, excited meeting, except the person being yelled at was not Greenberg, it was him. So it may be that Chef got that slightly wrong, that the meeting did happen, but that he wasn't yelling at Coleco's CEO, but was instead yelling at Coleco's head of licensing. Either way, though, this was a dramatic moment, and Coleco had to back down Everything was fine, except then at that point, Ray Kassar was fired at the beginning of July in 1983. That just put negotiations back to to ground zero because there was going to be a new team coming in and this and that. There's been a lot made about that situation because, of course, Atari was at that time also developing the 7800, which was eventually released in 1986. Atari was not developing it directly, but Warner Communications had a contract with General Computer Corporation to put that together. A lot of people have speculated, and this really is just speculation, that Atari was perhaps stringing the negotiations along because they figured they could lock Nintendo into a deal 
and take out a competitor because they could say, yeah, yeah, we'll sell your system, sign a deal, and then not really sell the system and focus on their own 7800. There are some internal memos that seem to indicate that some of the Atari engineers were higher on the 7800 than they were on the NES. Who knows? We don't really have good insight into all of that. For our purposes, that is the beginning of the Nintendo attempt to penetrate the North American market. It really starts in 83. Well, of course, after that, as we all know, uh, the market kind of falls apart. Partially because of, but not nearly as much as people say, our subject of last year's holiday episode, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. For the full story on E.T., we've got that episode, of course, for our full story on the crash, where we explain why E.T. isn't nearly as big a deal as people make it out to be. We've got our three-part crash episode. We'll remind people of all of those in the show notes as usual. The U.S. market is dead at this point. I know I've emphasized this in a couple of other episodes, but every time we bring this up, it bears repeating, even if we end up doing this a hundred times over the course of this show. Yes, the market really was dead. Gone. Kaput. No more. Ceased to be. It was an X market. There's a movement among some enthusiasts of video games that lived through this period, but were children or teenagers during this period, to push back on that and say, there wasn't a crash. I could go down to the local toy store and buy up every Atari game I wanted out of the dollar bin at the front of the store, or I just went and bought a Commodore 64, and the Commodore 64 had tons of great games on it. I never stopped playing games. Video games never meant went away. This crash stuff is nuts. It didn't happen. I lived through it. I was there, and I always saw video games. Well, we have to remember that when we talk about this being a video game crash, we are talking about the collapse of the industry that supplies cartridge-based video game console entertainment. Yes, you could still buy all of the VCS cartridges you wanted in the store, usually for between one and five bucks, with maybe the occasional new release still trying to hold fast to that $30 price point. Yes, you could do that, but that's because all of that inventory was stuck and there was a glut and nobody could return it and nobody could get rid of it, so they just put it out there. Just because you could buy that video game or five of those video games doesn't mean that the companies that made those video games were making any money. They were not. It doesn't mean the retailers were even making any money. They were just making the best of a bad situation. They were stuck with the inventory, so they were trying to get what they could for it and get the heck out. Even though you could, yes, move on to a Commodore 64 and play computer games, that was a completely different market served by almost completely different companies It was a market where the scale was, in those days, you were over the moon if you sold 50,000 copies of a game. In short, it's pretty much the console, and I want to emphasize this, console industry collapsed. You still had the arcade thing going on, and you had computer things going on. Really, at this point, all three industries are very, very independent. They haven't merged into the massive ball of video game-ness that we have today. It's really the consoles that died, and primarily Atari being the forefront of that, pretty much the poster child of the entire thing. Exactly. No one was making new games. No one was making new consoles, new this, new that. 
pretty much everyone thought, okay, yeah, we can have some arcade things. We can have computer games. Consoles, that's a dead thing. We're getting out. We're done. Liquidate. Goodbye. Exactly. The wider public turned away from electronic games. Because, yes, the people today that are like, well, I kept playing games all my life. The crash never happened. Well, you, my friend, were a true gamer. I know that that term has some negative connotations today, but I just mean it in the sense of someone who truly enjoys playing games. You were a true gamer. You were the person that was always seeking out games. When those consoles went away, when those cartridges went away, you went looking for more. You found the Commodore 64, or you found the Atari 800, or you found the Commodore Amiga a few years later. You were looking for it. Most people, when those consoles went away, they stopped looking for it. As I was saying, you were over the moon in computer games in this time if you sold 50,000 copies. 100,000 copies was a significant hit. Now, granted, there was piracy. The number of people playing a particular computer game was going to be a little larger than that 50,000 or that 100,000. Still, you're going from a situation where millions of people are buying the latest hits to tens of thousands of people are buying the latest, biggest hits. It's not comparable. So really, this industry is dead. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, we have 10 million people buying video game stuff and 10,000 are still actively buying. That is a tenth of a percent. You know, the drop wasn't quite that big. That's just a convenient for mass. But the point is, it was a huge drop off. So believe me, if you're one of these gaming enthusiasts that is like, well, I never stopped playing games. I could always buy games if I wanted. There were always games available. The crash was not really a thing. It was dead. Retailers did not want anything to do with video games. Buyers were fired for buying too many video games. The people that replaced them in the buyer jobs at department stores and toy stores and whatnot did not want to get fired like their predecessor by buying more video games. It was done. And I know we're kind of beating this into the ground here, but it's so important to realize that this has not been blown out of proportion all these years. This has not been exaggerated. It has not been overdone, over-dramatized. It was gone. That was really the market that Nintendo was looking at. It was a market that no longer existed. They had an equivalent of a mountain range in order to get people to really understand and want this again. They weren't going to have an easy trick of this. They had a major uphill battle. We're talking mountains here. Exactly. So why do it? Why even do it then? There are two reasons. First of all, as we said, the Japanese market was very successful. The Japanese were selling millions of these things. The Japanese were buying millions of these things. Millions of Famicoms, probably in the low tens of millions of cartridges. It was a big deal. Second of all, Nintendo, uh, we have to remember, at this time still had a coin-op presence. We may recall from our Picking Up the Pieces episode, or Arcades After the Crash episode, that the market kind of bottomed out in coin-op, which was going through a different cyclical downturn than the console market was, because as Jeffrey said, these were still separate, though related, industries. The market there had bottomed out by 1984 and was starting to pick back up again. We talked about how that new market in the U.S. was based a lot around kits and interchangeable hardware because it was cheaper to replace games that way. 
Nintendo had a piece of hardware called the Versus system, the VS system, that basically brought Famicom games into the arcade. They were basically souped-up Famicom systems. I mean, you know, they have more RAM and, and some of the other things you can do with an arcade system you can't do in the home. But they were releasing Famicom games in the arcade through this Versus system. Things like their sports games, like baseball and golf, or their light gun games, like Hogan's Alley and Duck Hunt, or, uh, you know, Excite Bike. These games were coming to the arcade in the U.S. as well as in Japan. The Versus system was doing really, really well. It was doing well in the U.S. too. You know, the numbers are not comparable to consoles because location-based entertainment always sells fewer units because they're more expensive and then you make your revenue, you know, one quarter at a time if you're an operator. They were selling tens of thousands of Versus systems. They knew that Japanese consumers were responding to the Famicom. Even though there are many cultural differences between Americans and Japanese, children are children. If Japanese children find this stuff fun, American children are probably going to find this stuff fun too. Then on top of that, they had the VS games in the arcades, and so they could look at that coin drop and be like, you see these games like baseball or golf or duck hunt. American consumers in coin-op in the arcades are responding to these games. These games are fun. These games are doing well. There is no reason we can't bring these into American homes. Except for the one big reason, which is... There is no console industry. Right, video games are now poison. They start looking at this, and they start sniffing around maybe doing something in 1985. At some point in 1984, I don't have an exact date for you, but at some point in 1984, Nintendo starts considering, how can we do this? They take a multi-pronged approach to this. They start doing some market research. There's a gentleman by the name of Anton Bruhl, who had been the president of the international division of Atari who had been responsible for selling the VCS and and other video game products outside of the United States. He was very good at that job. The European market did not overheat in the same way the U.S. market did. Now, the European markets at this time were very small because the cost of living is, uh, particularly at that time, was lower in Europe. The systems are very expensive, made more so by the fact that they're imported products. The numbers in Europe were never very big, but Tony Brule and his team were much more conservative in their ordering, were much more choosy in the product that they would bring over to Europe. So that side of the business didn't disintegrate in the same way Atari's consumer business did in the U.S., though, of course, it's not like Atari could survive on what was ultimately a pretty small international business. Tony Brule knew those markets. He knew the video game market well. And after the Atari thing fell apart, he uh, started a consulting company that still exists today, IDG. They have consulted with many different video game companies over the year. They also consulted very much with Sega when Sega was getting into the market a few years later. But they retained Tony Brule, who also retained some people at DDBO, a big ad agency. They started doing some market research. They started putting out some feelers to former buyers, former video game company executives from places like Atari and Coleco and all of these other people to kind of figure out what went wrong and how to kind of get away from that. They came to uh, a couple of conclusions. 
the biggest conclusions that they came to really were that the gameplay's got to be there, that there was a feeling that a lot of products in the earlier period overpromised and underdelivered, both in terms of doing their best to try to be like the games in Coinop and it's just impossible to be like the games in Coinop back then. I mean, it's it's not that it was the fault of the programmers or anything. It was just the technology was too primitive. But it was also, you know, you run these big, flashy television commercials. You do this incredible graphic art and design on your game boxes. You have all of this material that is promising you this amazing experience, and then you get into the game itself, even the ones that were very well done. And, of course, there were some very well done VCS games. At the end of the day, they can never quite live up to that just because of the technology limitations. So the the gameplay has got to be there, and you've got to deliver what you promise. Well, Nintendo figured they had that part down already. They knew they had good games. So, you know, that part makes sense. The other thing is you have to control the platform. The crash, as we talked about in our episodes, was primarily caused by an overabundance of product, by the market absorbing roughly 200% of demand in product, which was just impossible. That market was out of control because Atari had no way to keep anybody off. They had been banking on patents because they had some key patents in certain parts of the industrial design and mechanical design of the system, particularly in the cartridges and the locking mechanism that binds the cartridge to the system. Those patents did not survive scrutiny when Activision entered the market and was able to engineer around the patents. They didn't have a second line of defense. So once that happened and once everyone figured out how to reverse engineer the console, it was over. They couldn't control the platform. This is why Nintendo uh, makes a couple of very important decisions right away. The first of those is that whatever they do, they are not going to call it a video game They are going to try to broaden the market beyond toy stores. Certainly, the Atari product was not just sold in toy stores. It was sold in department stores. It was sold in electronic stores. As that market continued to develop, and as more and more toy companies came in, like Mattel with the Intellivision, like Coleco with the ColecoVision, like Milton Bradley with the Vectrex, like Parker Brothers, which didn't create a system but did produce cartridges, software for systems, it really became first and foremost considered a toy. The market ended up settling in to that 6 to 12 demographic with the teenagers being more drawn to the arcade rather than to the home system. So it had kind of pooled in this younger kid area. It had definitely transpired that many of the biggest companies in the business were toy companies. So there was a definite feel that the video game was a toy. What they were going to do is reposition it as a consumer electronic rather than a toy with the thought that that would get them into locations, that that would get them connections with buyers that would not necessarily be so gun-shy about doing this whole video game thing. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't go to toy stores as well. We're going to talk about that. They had some big supporters in the toy space. But they felt, first and foremost, they had to do this as a consumer electronic product. So they came up with this concept of the advanced video system, the Nintendo AVS, 
what we have to keep in mind here, in addition to the fact that they want it to be consumer electronic, this is the period when VCRs are blowing up. This is the new hotness in consumer electronics. The VCR has been around since the mid-70s. In this early to mid-1980s period, you had the format war between VHS and Beta. You had Matsushita and its allies creating this VHS standard. Because you had so many manufacturers working around a single standard, that brought down the price of the VCR to a degree that it could be afforded by more people. So it's really only in this kind of 83, 84 period that you're really starting to see heavy VCR adoption for the first time, even though the technology goes back about a decade at that point. The advanced video system, having video in there is fine. Video is hot. Video game, bad. Video, hot. Then they redid the form factor at Nintendo of America because the Famicom, of course, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners kind of know what that looks like. The Famicom in Japan was very much a toy. It was very much marketed as a toy. It's got this bright red plastic, and it looks like a plaything. They redesigned it, an industrial designer at Nintendo of America, who I believe still works there. I know he still worked there as of a couple of years ago, and I think he still works there after all these years. Lance Barr redesigned this system to look like an advanced electronic component, like an advanced stereo component, or like a VCR. It was sleek, and it was kind of black mostly with some dark gray. We'll try to throw some pictures of that in the show notes because this uh, AVS system has survived, or pictures of it, I should say, have survived. So they created this sleek, high-tech electronic. They created all sorts of these crazy peripherals for it. They were going to try to tap more into the computer side of things. They had this keyboard that they were going to do with it, and they had this disk drive that they were going to do with it. They had a music keyboard that they were going to do with it. The controllers were going to be these infrared controllers, I think probably kind of playing on the idea of the television remote which, again, is another thing that was becoming more and more common in this time period and was seen as a hot and interesting piece of audiovisual technology. It was going to be the advanced video system. Well, I'm looking off to my right here, and I don't see that. Yes, (laughs) that's right. There is no such thing as an advanced video system. They take this to CES in January of 1985, and I want to be clear on this. They took it to CES in January of 1985. Game Over, David Sheff's book, as well as certain other sources that have since parroted David Sheff, say that this unveiling happened at CES in 1984. This is wrong. Nintendo only brought it to CES in 1985. There's multiple confirmations on this from Nintendo employees and from Nintendo marketing materials and from show reports and everything. This is solid. This is true. It was not 1984. I can promise you that. You take nothing else out of this episode, right? (laughs) January 1985, they bring this thing to Las Vegas. And there's some confusion around this as well. Again, there's a disconnect between how Chef presents it and how people have presented it that were with Nintendo presenting it many years later, but were the people that were actually there. Chef really tries to play up the drama of the hopelessness of the Nintendo situation. It seems like he probably overplayed it just a little bit. When Chef talks about the CES, which he says it's in 84, but it's still the same CES. He's just got dates wrong. 
he talks about how people were looking at it and were saying, okay, well, yeah, you've got some good-looking games here. Fine. That's great. You know, we'd never buy this thing. But that's not how the Nintendo uh, people remember it, because they weren't there to sell it. We've talked about this before. There are two CES shows. There's a January show and there's a June show. The January show is where you bring your pie-in-the-sky stuff, where you bring stuff that's early in development, where you just send up test balloons and are like, this is a thing we're looking at doing. What do you think about it? Then the June CES is where you have your more finished product and you're there saying, okay, give me your orders for Christmas. They weren't there to sell the system to anybody. They didn't have a price point. They didn't have a solid idea of what games would be released for it at that time. They didn't have any operation in place to try to take orders on anything. This was entirely just a throw this out there and see what people think. They had a big circular booth at the show. All around the rim of the circular booth, they had these AVS systems. Now, the AVS as such did not exist. What they did is they did a little bit of trickery. They had mock-ups of what the AVS would look like, what the case would look like, what the peripherals would look like. They had that sitting on the table, and then behind it, they would have a television, and that television was hooked up to a Famicom that was hiding underneath the table. Now, there's no deception in terms of the games, because a Famicom isn't NES. It's not like the hardware is different. Unlike the, say, the Nintendo PlayStation prototype that was just discovered a while ago, no one's ever going to discover a working Nintendo AVS prototype because there was no such thing. They had mock-ups of the outer casing, and then they had regular Famicoms actually running the games. As Bruce Lowry remembers it, who was VP of Sales at the time, they got a really enthusiastic response to it. He said particularly the golf game was very popular, Nintendo Golf. He said people loved it and people were very enthusiastic about it. The idea of sales never really came up because that's not what they were there for. They were just floating the hardware. Taking the temperature of the crowd. Okay, is this viable? Will people warm up to it if we give it the right suit? Exactly. I think Chef may overplay that a bit. I mean, he's not wrong that they didn't take orders, but that's not really what they were looking for. They felt pretty good coming out of that, and uh, they had one especially enthusiastic person stay in touch with them after the show, which was a gentleman by the name of Sam Borofsky. Sam Borofsky is uh, an individual whose role in all of this was not really known until Blake Harris's Console War. I do have some issues with that book here and there and how the material was presented. One absolutely wonderful service that Blake Harris did was kind of uh, resurrect the story of Mr. Borofsky. Sam Borofsky had been an electronics buyer in the 70s. When video games came along in the middle of the decade, he was one of the few people that from the very beginning were like, oh my God, this is going to be the big new thing. He quit what he was doing and he became one of Atari's first sales reps for the system. We may remember that manufacturing reps are individuals who serve as middlemen. Most companies, especially back then, did not do their sales directly. Most big companies that were selling into hundreds of outlets or thousands of outlets did not do their own sales internally. They would maybe do some of the big national accounts internally, 
but then they would farm out the remaining sales to regional sales representatives. And these sales reps would work for a bunch of different companies but they wouldn't carry competing products in the same line. So if you were in consumer electronics, you might have a television you carry, you might have a radio you carry, you might have a video game you carry. So you're doing all of these lines, but you wouldn't do two different video game systems because you're competing against yourself and nobody wants that. I mean, the, the manufacturers would be upset about that. Most sales in the Atari days, except for some of the national accounts, were done through regional sales reps. Sam Borofsky, through his company, Sam Borofsky Associates, became the regional sales rep for the Northeast of the United States. I don't know if he had all of New England, but he definitely had New York, New Jersey, that part of the Northeast United States. He was one of their most high-powered sales reps. He says that himself, but I've also, I've talked to some of the salespeople at Atari, some of the VPs of sales. They absolutely remember that, you know, there were about two or three really big companies. Don Kingsborough's company in California was big. The guy down in Texas was big. Sam Borofsky was big. He was definitely one of the big ones, which makes sense because his sales territory is in a populous region. But he was also very enthusiastic, very passionate about the product. He did market other types of products as well. He wasn't exclusively in video games, but he was truly passionate about the video game. And at one point, he had come to represent about 30% of Atari's sales nationwide, 30% going through Sam Borofsky Associates. That's pretty impressive. Yep. Of course, he was there when the whole thing fell apart. His company didn't fold because, like I said, he had other lines. He wasn't solely in video games. He did not believe the video game thing was played out, and he was constantly on the lookout for the next big thing because he wanted to get back into video games if an opportunity would present itself. So when he saw the AVS at CES in January 1985, he was like, yes, yes, a thousand times yes. He entered into a regular correspondence with Ron Judy, who was the head of marketing at Nintendo, and with Bruce Lowry, who was the head of sales at Nintendo. He started consulting with them very closely on product positioning and price points and how to deal with retailers and all of this stuff. Now, he was not the only guy they were talking with. Unfortunately, he's passed away since, uh, so I'll never have a chance to talk to him. I'm sure that just like any good salesman, when he was talking to Blake Harris, he was selling his indispensability to the effort, because naturally you would. In point of fact, he was one of several individuals that Nintendo was consulting with on a regular basis as they were trying to figure this out. Uh, When I talked to Bruce Lowry, I didn't know about Borofsky, but when I talked to Gail Tilden, who was head of marketing services and and press relations communications during this period of time, I asked her about Sam Borofsky, and she was like, oh, yeah, I mean, he was an important ally, but he was one of many. I I get the feeling that Blake Harris has actually overplayed Borofsky's importance a little bit, but it's definitely true that he was working with them. He was very enthusiastic and became a key ally as this thing unfolds. They've had this first showing. They've gotten a few people excited, a few people like Sam Borofsky excited. They're consulting with various people about how do we not repeat the mistakes of the past? How do we not repeat the mistakes of Atari? They're starting to figure out, okay, what do we do next? They start doing some focus groups. They start doing some uh, market research, bringing people into play. They do uh, one down in Pasadena. They do one in New Jersey. They probably do them in some other places. 
just bringing kids in and doing focus group testing. You know, they stand behind the mirror while the person modeling the products, you know, has them play it and then ask them questions and, you know, you get surveys, standard focus group stuff. This is another area where the David Sheff account deviates from the memory of participants. David Sheff recounts a very, very bleak picture of these focus groups, how kids hated it, that it was just an absolute disaster. That's not how Gail Tilden remembers it. As I said, Gail Tilden at this period of time, she was in marketing under Ron Judy. Later on, she's famous for being the person who launched Nintendo Power and was the editor of Nintendo Power. This is pre-Nintendo Power. She was working in marketing under Ron Judy, and her job was kind of communications, PR, marketing services. So she was involved in this market research. She was often the one behind the mirror. She remembers that they were very pleased with the reaction of the kids. It was clear that the kids were interested, engaged, were playing with the system. Chef is not entirely wrong with what he said, because as it turns out, the people running the focus groups, which is not Nintendo, you know, you hire out a company to do your focus groups for you. You hire market researchers that specialize in doing focus groups. When the focus group guy came back to them afterwards with his observations and the questionnaires and everything else, he said, I'll be honest with you, I have never, ever seen a company launch a product with these results. He said they were that bad. It's like no company ever launches a product with these kind of focus group results. Because, I mean, you know, Gail's just going off of memory here. I don't know where the disconnect was, whether they were playing the games and having a lot of fun, but then just because of the way they were asked the questions afterwards, the surveys weren't as good. Even though these results were kind of brutal, they weren't brutal in the way that Chef said, because the Nintendo people honestly thought that despite what the focus group guy is saying, those kids were clearly having fun in there. So they're like, well, we've still got to go forward with this. They do refine it. They decide that they were getting a little too ambitious with all of these crazy peripherals and stuff. I mean, the infrared controllers were, quite frankly, never going to be... Those were a non-starter. Did you ever... I mean, this is a couple of years later, but did you ever use any of the wireless NES controllers that came out in kind of the mid-80s? There were a couple of them. I never used any of the wireless Nintendo ones, but I have and still use, on occasion, the wireless Super Nintendo ones. They're not that great either. No, they're they're terrible. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of great wireless controllers, and there are even, I mean, even the Wii, which was using infrared, was pretty good as far as the thing as these things go. But the infrared technology in the '80s was terrible. The signal was very weak. The signal was very prone to interference. The signal was very prone to being blocked by solid objects. Infrared controllers—that was a pipe dream. Those went away very quickly. They did go with wires instead. They made the wires longer than the controllers in Japan because it's a house kind of thing. Japanese houses are smaller. Japanese living spaces are smaller. Since everything's more cramped, the system's close to the television and you're close to the television. And so you don't necessarily need as long a cord. They had also made the controllers non-detachable, the wires non-detachable in Japan because it saved them money. They knew they couldn't do that in the U.S. with the longer controllers because if you have long controller wires going across the floor and then mom and dad come along and trip over the controllers that you left out, trip over the wires, then, you know, you're breaking the system. 
even in Japan, they had horrible problems with maintenance with people, you know, breaking the wires and needing them fixed. They knew they couldn't do that in, in the U.S., so they end up designing them as, as plugins. But so the infrared controllers are gone. The computer stuff, it's too elaborate. It's too much. They're starting to really worry about price point. They're being told by people like Sam Borofsky that their price point is too high. I think it's probably, I don't know this for sure, I don't have a one, one-to-one source saying this is so, but I'm sure some of these concerns about price point and whatnot caused them to reevaluate. They knew that they needed to focus on the games. They could see that the kids were responding to the games in focus groups, no matter what their moderators were telling them. So they really wanted to dial it back to the games. But they still knew that it couldn't be a video game. I mean, it is a video game. But they knew they couldn't sell it as a video game still. So they took a second pass at designing. They created what we know as the Nintendo Entertainment System today. It's a little boxier than the original. It's that that gray. I mean, it's it's an NES. I mean, I don't have to describe it. <laughs> it's pretty iconic. If you don't know what an NES yeah. is and you're into video game history... I'll throw it in the show notes so you can figure it out. Just go to Wikipedia, you know, go to Wikipedia. You can see what it looks like. They create that. I I do want to say one thing, and of course, one aspect of it that is the bane of every NES owner ever is that unlike the original Famicom, it is not top-loading, it is front-loading, which, of course, caused all sorts of problems with that 72-pin connector (laughs) that we've all dealt with. As someone who had to take apart his Nintendo and very meticulously clean it, then happened to stumble across a very interesting video describing how they actually have tension bolts that you tighten to determine how much of a swing the cartridge takes when it goes down into place. Over time, with heat expansion and contraction, those screws will loosen. So you have to actually tighten those a little bit 20, 30 years later in order to get the thing to behave properly. After some meticulous cleaning, some adjusting of screws, and tightening and loosening, and just sort of playing around with, where is this the happy point? I then sent Alex a nice pretty picture of Dragon Warrior 3 <laughs> launching, and it's saying, welcome back on the screen. And then Nintendo sort of like in pieces, but functioning, before I put it back together. <laughs> yes, indeed. Even aside from those, those long-term hardware problems, we all know the joys of plugging in an NES game into our system and pressing the button and getting a solid gray screen or a flashing gray screen or a screen full of on-screen, on-screen uh, gobbledygook. junk, gobbledygook. That was all down to the, the difficulties with getting a solid lock using those connectors. That unfortunate decision was part of the same marketing effort. They wanted it front-loading because, again, the VCR was the hot item in consumer electronics. VCRs were front-loading. You pushed the tape in. So they wanted to make it front-loading to remind people of a VCR as opposed to making it top-loading like all the early video game systems, like the VCS had been, which reminded people of a video game. That was one instance where they got a little too clever for their own good in trying to do this uh, on-the-sly marketing. (laughs) A lot of lives would have been a lot nicer. There would have been a lot less blowing, which, of course, doesn't even work. But there would have been a lot less blowing if they had just left it top-mounted instead of doing this dumb marketing subterfuge that anyone could see through anyway. But what about the magic touch? (laughs) It works. It works. Again, it comes down to getting the connections just right. The magic touch does work because it's about the exact 
right point where the, the locking works. Blowing doesn't do a thing. In fact, of course, it can potentially corrode your connectors over time because of the moisture getting in there. But eh. this is completely unrelated, but why not? I do wonder how blowing spread. I've never done the research. I don't know if a magazine, a consumer magazine or something suggested it or something. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it around the world. When Google in Japan did that Dragon Quest thing in Japan, even though that was the top loading system, even they did a joke about blowing on the cartridge. It's like everyone knew that you were supposed to blow on cartridges. When we were kids, everyone knew. We just knew. Mm -hmm. I really wonder how that became shared knowledge across the entire United States and the world. But that's way beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. They redesign it to make this compact, boxy, VCR-like contraption. They give it another new name, the Nintendo Entertainment System. Again, like I said, they realized they needed to focus on the games at some level, and they needed to focus on family entertainment at some level. Again, I don't have an exact one-for-one proof of this, but I think they went advanced video system the first time because they were trying to make that VCR connection. But I think then they realized that, wait a minute, we're losing the family entertainment function of this thing. We need something in the name that identifies it as family fun. So, you know, they go from advanced video system to Nintendo Entertainment System, still being very careful not to use the word video game in there. They referred to their cartridges as game packs or as packs, P-A-K, to make it, like, cool, I guess, because video game cartridges had just as bad a reputation as video game systems. Video game cartridges are those things that you bought for $1 to $5 a piece in the giant bins at the front of the store. Game packs are much more advanced. Game packs are not just cartridges with Nintendo. They are way more advanced. They get to be in the clear special Nintendo box at the middle of the store where you had to go in there and you bought the game packs for a mere This was a nice, wonderful low price, $70 for your Roger Rabbit. (laughs) Absolutely. As we'll see when we get there, the prices were a little cheaper at the very beginning. But yes, the point is a game cartridge was something that no longer had any value. So they had to call them game packs or just packs. They were very careful about all this naming. They also wanted to make sure they had some entertainment products that were not just video game products. They had already had a version of the Zapper in the first round with the AVS. You know, there was already a light gun for the Famicom as as well, for that matter, in Japan. The one in Japan looked like a realistic gun. They couldn't do that in the U.S. because of certain laws. So they created something that was more of a futuristic sci-fi phaser kind of thing. Even that ended up being too realistic for some, which is why you have a situation where the very early NESs had gray zappers and the later NESs had orange zappers because the decision was made that even though it didn't look like a real gun model, it had colors that were still apt to make it seem more like a real gun. So they made it bright orange so there'd be no confusion. And we'll leave it to the listener to decide which one of us has the gray zapper and which one of us has the orange zapper. (laughs) Indeed. Then they also wanted something else. And so at this point, somewhere in between that first showing uh, of the AVS in January and, and when they launch it later in the year, the folks back in Nintendo in Japan come up with a robot called the Robotic Operating Buddy, or ROB for short. 
Rob is something that seems like a great idea in concept, but is not a great idea in practice. He's a little gray robot, about a foot high. Smash Brothers players will, of course, recognize what he looks like, even if you don't remember him from the first time around. Yeah, about a foot high, little gray robot that had these arms and had these these uh, big photoreceptors in the head, the, the eyes, big photoreceptors. The flashing of the television, similar to how a light gun works, patterns flashing on the television in a game could trigger Rob to make movements, and it could move side to side and move its arms, and it could pick up these little discs, and then he could stack them someplace else. Well, in practice, the photoreceptors weren't the greatest. The robot could only move very slowly. It was very loud and grindy when it did it. There's only so much gameplay you could do with moving stacks of things around. Rob never had much influence in terms of being a video game peripheral. But the flip side of this is robots were big at the time. Robotic toys were big at the time. Even though there weren't many full-fledged robots, even things like Alfie, the educational robot, which didn't move, but you could put different cards in it and press buttons and it would talk and stuff. Robots were big at this time. Uh, In Japan, Namco was very involved with robots. Nolan Bushnell had a company at this time called Axlon that was working on a robot, a toy robot. The entire idea of robots was big in toys at the time. So it was an exciting product. And if you look at early reports on the Nintendo Entertainment System, when newspapers or television news were reporting on this new entertainment system, the robot almost always featured very heavily in the reporting. Even though it was never much of a fun video game peripheral and was kind of pushed aside very quickly, it was very important to the marketing and very important to this Trojan horse approach of, no, this is not just a video game. This is a robot. People like robots. This is a target shooting thing, the zapper, the toy gun. They're both trying to position it as a consumer electronic. They're also saying, but if you think of it as more of a toy than a consumer electronic, it is all of these different toys in one. It is not just a video game. Very important. I would liken it more like Rob. It's almost like a before launch marketing mascot. It's sort of like whenever you thought of Nintendo back then, you saw Rob very prominently doing things that Rob never actually does. Sort of like how now all Rob does is he sits around as a mascot for the speedrunning community with tool-assisted speedruns, holding a Nintendo controller so you can see which buttons are pressed really quickly. Yeah, good old Taskbot. Yeah, I mean, because it looks very striking. As a kind of mascot or as a kind of gateway into this new product, it's very successful. Once you play with it, you're like, well, I'm done with that. At this point, that doesn't matter. At this point... They just need to get noticed because they're launching into a dead market. They need to get noticed. So in that sense, Rob is very, very successful. The fact that he's even included in things like Smash Brothers today shows that there's a certain iconic level of respect for the form factor amongst Nintendo enthusiasts, even if they've never played the games. I know, you know, I never played with a Rob as a kid. I never even saw a Rob as a kid, but I had one friend. I think I've mentioned this before. This was the one friend that had all the fancy stuff. The only friend that ever had a Master System. He got a Genesis, like right when a Genesis came out, before most people got Genesis. Of course, they had an NES and they had a ton of games. They didn't have their Rob hooked up anymore, but they still had the box that their Nintendo came in because they got the deluxe set with the Rob. 
And they still had the box. And I remember it was in a little storage closet under the stairs. And he had some toys in there as well, which is why I'd sometimes be in that closet. And, you know, I was about maybe eight years old at this point. This is when I lived in Hawaii. Even just seeing that Rob on the box as an eight-year-old, it's like, that looks so cool. But, of course, they didn't have it plugged in anymore because it wasn't actually that cool. But it really was effective as a marketer. So, anyway, they've got the system. They've got some vague idea of what they want to do with it. They've evaluated the games. Don James, their warehouse manager, and Howard Phillips, who is not yet Mr. Nintendo Game Master, Howard Phillips and and Jerry Momota, their guys, they've played the games that are available in Japan. They've kind of picked the ones that they think will work best. So they've got a game lineup coming together. They're starting a search for an ad agency. Now comes the question of, well, how are we going to launch this thing? They knew they needed to do a test market. They knew that there was going to be very little support in the retail community to go national right away because video games are dead. They're gone. They start looking around for what you might call isolated test markets, by which I mean a city someplace that is big enough to give you an idea of how the system might do, but is small enough that it's not so interconnected with the rest of the world. And if you make mistakes there, people won't notice and, you know, it can be a little easier to sell in and and that kind of stuff. So they're looking at places like Denver and Portland places like that. And then at the June CES in Chicago, they have a a big meeting. Mr. Yamauchi is there, president of Nintendo, because it's CES, so he's flown in for that. There's a big meeting with Yamauchi and Minoru Awakawa, who is the uh, president of Nintendo of America. Ron Judy's there in marketing, Bruce Lowry in sales, all the big people. They tell them, well, we're thinking of launching here, we're thinking of launching there, and Yamauchi says, no, no. If we are going to prove this thing is going to work, we have to go into the biggest, toughest market in the country and make it work there. L.A.? New York City. New York City! It is the heart of retail. There are a lot of big, major retailers there. Of course, it's the largest city in the country. It's hard-nosed, a lot of... Cynical toy buyers, cynical electronics buyers, people that have seen it all. A place that, of course, was impacted greatly by the market crash. This comes straight from Yamauchi. That's what Bruce Lowry says. Lowry was there. Big meeting in Chicago, and Yamauchi says, no, we are doing this in New York City or we're not doing it at all. Believe me, he didn't mean that they should not do it at all. New York City, I mean, that is an unusual place to do a test market because it is a tough market. There's lots of competition. If you make mistakes there, people will find out about it. You can't kind of hide your test market if you're in a big city like that. Okay, that's the word from the boss, so that's what we're going to do. At this point, Sam Borofsky enters our picture again. Sam Borofsky has been staying in contact with the Nintendo people all along. But now that they're going to his town, New York City, that's where he is, that's where his company is, he is going to be the manufacturer's rep for the system. He is going to be the one primarily responsible for pushing the system onto accounts, onto retailers, onto buyers. Won't be the only guy. Bruce Lowry will be there, their own internal sales guy. Borofsky and his right-hand man, Randy Pertzman, are going to be the reps for the system. They have a lot of contacts in the area. That's going to open doors for them that they wouldn't otherwise be able to open. They're looking at ad agencies as well. They first want to go to Chiat Day. They're really looking to make a splash. 
they're going to spend 2.5 million on advertising, which is a significant chunk of change to advertise in a single market for just a period of about three or four months. Four months, they're going to start advertising in September before it's actually available so they can build up advanced demand. 2.5 million for four months in a single market, that's not jump change. That's a lot of money. And so they want to go find the best and They're looking at a lot of the companies that made big splashes with like flashy Super Bowl commercials. They're looking at other companies that have really big family brands. Chiat Day at this time is super famous for the Macintosh 1984 ad, which aired during the 1984 Super Bowl just over a year ago, about a year and a half ago when they're looking for an ad agency. They go to Chiat Day and they offer Chiat Day the business. They meet with Lee Clow, their uh, famous creative director. It's just a complete mismatch. First of all, it's small fry. Chiat Day does big business, and this is just one market and one product. It's very small potatoes for them. Second of all, they don't like anything about it. They say, well, you have to change the name. Nintendo is too hard to say. That's what the Chiat Day people say. Lee Clow says, Nintendo is too hard to say. You need to change the name to something else. And they're like, we can't. It's the company. It's a very proud Japanese company that goes back almost 100 years. That's not happening. Uh, we can't change the name. <laughs> and so they disagree on creative. It's it's a small business. And so Lee Clow just turns them down. If Lee Clow hadn't turned them down, they would have almost certainly gone with Chiat Day. But that didn't work out. Uh, they looked at J. Walter Thompson because J. Walter Thompson had McDonald's and did a lot of family advertising for them. You know, I asked about this kind of thing, too. In this initial marketing push, they really pushed family marketing because they wanted to provide a counterpoint to the arcade. And it's interesting, when Bruce Lowry was talking about the sales challenges, he wasn't necessarily as worried about the public reacting negatively to video games because video games were dead. That was a major concern with retailers. He felt that the big challenge, even though he wasn't the VP of Marketing, he worked very closely with Ron Judy, the VP of Marketing, and he had previously been the VP of Marketing for Nintendo before he was sales. So he has marketing experience. He's qualified to talk on this. He said that their big concern from a consumer perspective was not that, oh, those video game things, those are dead. Who wants those? It's, oh, video games. Those are those arcade things, aren't they? Those are those things where all the miscreants beat up their fellow school children to steal their lunch money and then go skip school so they can put coins into the game machines while smoking. Those are the bad things. Video games. There was some stigma around arcades, as there had always been stigma around arcades. Going back to the penny arcades in the 19th century. They really wanted to emphasize family advertising. They wanted to emphasize this idea that Nintendo Entertainment System is the thing that brings your kids back home. We have games that provide arcade-quality graphics. Now, in point of fact, could an NES put out as good a graphics as an arcade game in 1985? No, it couldn't. You have to remember that since the market had its downturn in the 82-83 period, The public perception in a lot of people's minds, particularly, say, parents that aren't as dialed into this, they're still thinking in terms of Pac-Man, Space Invaders. Certainly an NES could output graphics as nice as something done in 1980 or 1981. You know, just don't put too many objects on the screen at once. In terms of the graphical quality, it could. So they're being a little disingenuous when they say arcade quality graphics, but we have to remember that 
someone's perception of arcade quality graphics was not necessarily Gradius in 1985. It was Pac-Man in 1980. They're saying, we're bringing arcade quality graphics into the home. We're going to bring your children back from the arcade. We're going to keep them out of these bad places. They want their video game fix. They can do it with mom and dad in the living room, in the den. You can all play together. You know, this family advertising thing was a big thing. We've talked about this before, how family advertising was big in the early days of the first round of video game systems like the VCS and the Fairchild Channel F and all of that. Well, at the very beginning here, Nintendo is is taking a vaguely similar approach. I wouldn't say it's the exact same approach, but they're thinking of family too. That's why the entertainment system That's why they're looking at advertisers like J. Walter Thompson that have done family advertising for brands like McDonald's. They end up, and I I forget the name of the agency off the top of my head, they end up at a mid-sized agency that had done work for a few brands like uh, Ralph Lauren, a mid-sized agency in New York. The fact that it was in New York and their test market was in New York was coincidental. I mean, obviously, New York is the center of the advertising agency. I think it still is today. So it's not surprising. But I mean, Chiat Day's L.A. They weren't necessarily looking for a New York ad agency, but they end up with a mid-sized agency. They connected really well with the creatives there and the account executives there. It was a company that was big enough that they could do some bold creative advertising, but was small enough that they wouldn't feel that Nintendo's test market and the small amount of advertising they'd be doing would be beneath them, which is kind of how Chiat Day had felt. So they get an advertising agency in place. They work very closely with the agency, not just on newspaper and television commercials, but also on the packaging. As has been commented on many times in the past, those original black box Nintendo games, uh, NES games that launch with the system, all have kind of a pixelated image of something directly from the game on the box. That's because, like we said before, they thought that one of the real problems before was overselling. So they didn't want to do this elaborate piece of artwork to represent the game. They wanted to put something on the box that said, if you buy this game, this is what it will actually look like. We are not lying to you. This is actually how Mario will look like while he's dying by falling into a pit of lava and why are you shooting a fireball? But that's beside the point. The point is Mario on the box looks like Mario looks in the game, not some fancy artist rendering of what Mario might look like if we had a system five times as powerful. So they've got packaging, they've got advertising, they come up with that great original commercial that we'll put in the show notes that ends with that famous slogan, even then, now you're playing with power. They're pushing the robot, they're pushing the guns, they've got all this stuff together, and they've got their test market. They start running ads in September. In October, they start pushing the system. They bring in a strike team of some of the top employees and a few other people. Minoru Arakawa himself comes. Ron Judy is there. Bruce Lowry is there. Gail Tilden, who's in charge of the PR and the advertising, is there. They bring in a finance guy from Japan, Shigeru Ota. They bring in a technician from Japan as well in case they have any technical difficulties. Don James, who runs the warehouse and runs industrial design, is there. Howard Phillips, who's very soon going to become kind of the public face of Nintendo in a lot of ways in this time period with kids and with gamers, is there. They rent a warehouse in Hackensack, New Jersey, bring in a bunch of systems. They build a bunch of in-store displays. Don James takes the lead on that. 
they coordinate with Sam Borofsky, and they have to go out and start convincing retailers to take the system. So first of all, what have we got? What exactly are we talking about? We have what later became known as the deluxe system. It wasn't called the deluxe system at this time because it was the only system, but it's what Nintendo would later call the deluxe system. This was an $160 package. That's pretty expensive. You know, Sam Borofsky, he shared some letters with Blake Harris, so we know this because it was correspondence from the time. It's not just Sam Borofsky claiming it later. Originally, they were looking at doing $170. Sam Borofsky had told them, you cannot do $170. By the end, Atari VCS was $140 at retail most of the time. So even though they had a better system than Atari did, still public perception with everything being dead and everything, you can't have a system as expensive as that. He thought they should go at $130. Well, they couldn't get it down to $130, but they did do $160. I do have to wonder if if part of that is the reason why they decided to add the Rob to it as well. Again, I don't know this. This It's just speculation. But if they were leery about the price of the system, it would make sense for them to put an additional item in there that could help justify the price. Yes, we know it's $160, but look, you get a robot. That counts for something, right? I mean, you'd pay $160 just for a robot, right? Sure, Mr. Salesman. You get a whole entertainment system with it, too. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of it. For $160, you got an NES, two controllers, a Zapper, a Rob, and two pack-in games, Duck Hunt and Gyromite. That's right. Not Super Mario Brothers. Duck Hunt and Gyromite. Remember, they are really pushing the gun game and the robot aspect of this. If they're going to bundle in a robot and a gun, they figure that they need to include games that make use of the robot and the gun. So the original pack-in titles are Gyromite and Duck Hunt. That's $160 package. Then they had 15 other games that were made available sold separately. These 15 games were picked by going through about 40 or 50 different video games that were available in Japan. Don James, Howard Phillips, others were playing them and deciding which ones they thought would sell the best, which ones would do the best, oftentimes based on performance of similar games in coin-op like the VS system, etc. Most of these games sold for $25 a piece. The cartridges were much cheaper at launch than some of the later ones. You have to remember, of course, that some of the later cartridges, in addition to just inflation, the later cartridges often had more memory or had additional chips to provide additional functionality. These early games are very primitive, so they're smaller memory sizes, less specialized hardware, so they could get away with selling them for less money. Most of them were $25, a few of them were $30, and the other robot games stack up which was the second and last game that you could play with Rob, sold for a whopping $35, and it was the most expensive game of the lot. In addition to Stack Up, there were two additional gun games, Hogan's Alley and Wild Gunman, both of which I know you're very familiar with. Yes, I am very familiar with those, and all of the shooting and all of the blasting. I may even still have the cartridges, though. I do know that one of the games that we will bring up later has been lost to the ages somewhere in college. Then they also had Excite Bike, which is the uh, classic side view uh, bike racing game that even had a built in course editor. Very fancy, very popular. 
Wrecking Crew, which I know you're also familiar with. That is the one that was lost. I thought it was. It stars Mario, but it's not a typical Mario game because it wasn't made by Shigeru Miyamoto. It was made by the people over in R&D 1 and was not originally a Mario game, but then there was a suggestion when it was done that they use Mario. There's the sports lineup. Tennis, baseball, golf, and soccer are all available, as well as 10-Yard Fight, which was actually an Irem game. They licensed a couple of games from Irem, so this was released by Nintendo, but originally created by Irem. So they had all the major sports represented, with the tennis, baseball, and golf games being the ones that particularly stood out at this time. They had Ice Climber, that jumping, constantly jumping up through levels vertically while, you know, killing enemies and stuff. Smash Brothers players know that one as well. There was Clue Clue Land, which is not one of Nintendo's more fondly remembered arcade games necessarily. It's kind of a maze game. Pac-Man, of course, was a big thing. Of course, Nintendo's premier maze game at the time, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a super special game, but it was their primary maze game, was Devil World, done by Shigeru Miyamoto, which was a Pac-Man clone. Well, you couldn't do Devil World in the United States. No, you could not. Devil World, of course, famously never released in the U.S., but they still needed to have some kind of maze game because people remembered Pac-Man. So, uh, Clue Clue Land got the call this time around. Then they had their pinball game, just called Pinball. Again, it's another pretty uh, forgotten game. Especially when you consider the more superior version, Rollerball. (laughs) Indeed. They did, to get themselves a side-scrolling action game, they did do another license with Irem for the game Kung Fu. Again, released by Nintendo under the Nintendo name and the Nintendo packaging, but uh, like Ten Yard Fight originally, Irem. Then, bringing up the rear, last but certainly not least, a game that had just been released in September in Japan that was created to be a culmination of everything they had ever learned about making cartridge-based games before they transitioned to the Famicom Disk System in uh, Japan, a little title called Super Mario Brothers. There's been a lot of controversy about the Super Mario Brothers release date for some reason. There's been articles written in recent years saying that we have no idea when the game came out. There have been people saying it wasn't there at launch. It wasn't available until 1986. When I say recent years, it's been going on about a decade now. We do know when it was released. It was released with all the others. Even if somebody could make the argument that it took them an extra week to get it or something, it was advertised in the newspapers at the time. We have newspaper ads with it. I don't think it was even delayed. Nintendo has always had in its database that it was released at the same time as all the others, October the 18th, 1985. There's no real reason to think that they got that wrong. As far as I'm concerned, it was there from the beginning, but sometimes you see things say that it wasn't. But yeah, Super Mario Brothers was still a very new game at this time because it had just released in Japan the month prior. Nobody knew that it was going to become this big, huge thing yet. It was just... One of many games in the launch lineup not even considered for inclusion as one of the bundled games. I do have one question, though. What about Mock Rider? The remaining black box games, like Mock Rider, came out in 1986, very early in 1986. Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong 3, Donkey Kong Jr., Donkey Kong Math, Mario Brothers, Popeye, Balloon Fight, Gumshoe, Mock Rider, and Urban Champion. Just to list them off real fast. We won't bother putting them in the show notes because they're really not the the focus of this. 
That group of games that is also released in the black box packaging and are considered very early NES games, those were all available by the national launch in mid-1986, but they were not part of the launch in 1985. They had the strike team. They called themselves the SWAT team. Some of the top people at Nintendo came in and they rented this warehouse in Hackensack. They were staying at hotels at first, eventually, because they knew they'd be there for a while. They got a lot of the staff, rented houses or rented apartments in various parts of the city. Sam Borofsky and Randy Pertzman were there to work with Bruce Lowry to go to all the retailers. Ron Judy and Gail Tilden are there to do marketing. Arakawa is there to be the cheerleader and to keep everyone going. And he goes out on sales calls, too. But the head of the company himself is there. This is it. This is make or break. Retailers are challenging at first. Bruce Lowry told me a couple of stories. One story he told me is that he went to talk to the Woolworths buyer. The Woolworths buyer basically said, you see that window over there? And, you know, they're several floors up in whatever building. You see that window over there? I recommend you jump out of it. Wow. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, you'll have more luck jumping out a window than you will selling this system. Game Over tells the story of one unnamed buyer who said, I have this job because my predecessor was fired for buying video games. So no, I am not going to buy video games. There were a lot of retailers that initially responded in this manner. Very hostile. Very hostile. Not all of them. One of their big early champions was Toys R Us. Toys R Us was the one company that never gave up on video games. There are even reports from like the 83-84 period where they're still telling the press that they believe there's still life in video games. Bruce Lowry goes to meet with the Toys R Us buyer. And it's a big meeting. Not only is the buyer there, but the executive vice president of the company, Harold Moore, is there, and a couple of other high-level executives are there. Bruce Lowry told me this story. He gave his pitch. At the end of the pitch, the buyer said, we're not going to do this. We can't do video games again. We did video games. We got burned by video games. We're not going to do it again. And at that point, Harold Moore said, well, this is why I'm the executive Vice President, we are going to do this. We are going to buy your video games. We're going to let you put electronic demonstration displays in our stores. According to Bruce Lowry, they had never done that before. Now, video game demonstration kiosks were not new. They existed. You know, Atari did them, Fairchild did them, Fairchild did them back in like 76, 77. According to Bruce Lowry, Toys R Us had never let demonstration kiosks in the store before. He's not a Toys R Us employee, so he could be wrong about that. But at least in his memory, they'd never allowed that before. So Toys R Us put a big push behind it. In fact, they wanted to go national right away. They didn't even want to do a test market. They said, we will go national right now. Nintendo wasn't ready for that. So they said, well, no, we're going to do this test market. Toys R Us was 100% on board from the very beginning. Macy's Department Stores was a very early supporter. FAO Schwartz. I don't know how many people anymore are familiar with FAO Schwartz. Uh, We had one in the St. Louis Galleria back in the day when we were younger. FAO Schwartz was a high-end toy store that was known for offering lots of interesting specialty goods. For people that never actually were able to go to the FAO Schwartz store on Fifth Avenue in New York, most of us have still seen it anyway because that very famous piano scene in the movie Big where Tom Hanks is playing chopsticks on the giant piano on the floor. That was filmed at FAO Schwartz. Obviously, in, in the movie, it's a, it's a fictional toy store. You know, they changed the name. 
but that was FAO Schwartz. They had a Fifth Avenue toy store, prime real estate. It was considered to be a high-class, tastemaker, boutique kind of toy store. They were a very early supporter. That was their most visible and most useful store from a marketing and presentation perspective. It probably wasn't where they sold the most, but it's prime real estate on Fifth Avenue, glass displayed areas, glass and display areas. They lined up in a display a bunch of Rob units just lined up side by side, not the boxes, but the actual units themselves, and had them turned on so they were all turning their heads back and forth in unison in the store display. They had a few early retailers that were very happy to do it. Others were a little harder to convince. One thing that they did to try to drum up additional interest is they did mall tours. They would actually go around to local area malls with some of their systems set up. They contracted with Mookie Wilson and Ron Darling of the New York Mets. At this period, this was a weird period, a very brief period, where instead of the Yankees being the dominant baseball team in New York City, the New York Mets were. New York Mets would, of course, just a year later go on to win uh, the World Series against the Red Sox in 1986. But even in 1985, they were a young team on the rise with a lot of great talent, Stock Gooden and Daryl Strawberry and Gary Carter and all of these great players. They were the premier baseball team in New York. This was a period of time when the Yankees had fallen off a bit. They didn't get Strawberry or Gooden, but they contracted with Mookie Wilson and Ron Darling, two of the players, to come with them on these mall tours, usually just one of them. They'd alternate, take Mookie to one and Ron to another, etc., They'd have them be there to sign autographs and play the sports games against people coming up, play the baseball game. So that would generate excitement. And then they'd try to leverage the people coming to see the game in the mall to then be able to say to the stores in the mall, see, people are coming, they're having fun. Why don't you stock this? In one instance, this is a story that's sold in Game Over, very cynically, one mall manager signed them up, said, sure, you can come. They spent all night setting up their systems, and then right before the mall opened, he said, okay, you can't turn these on, and now it's time for you to go. He had just wanted to meet the baseball players. That's Wow. He let them come in. Yeah, very cynically, he let them come in so that he could see the baseball players, and then he said, okay, go away. But that was an isolated incident. Most of the malls, you know, worked with them well. Sam Borofsky was working his contacts. One story that's told in Game Over that, again, I think is a little skewed is that in Game Over, he tells the story of how they decide that because stores are not really taking the system, they will basically offer them 90-day terms and guarantee that they will take back anything that the stores don't sell. Full money-back guarantee for any equipment you don't sell after 90 days. They definitely talked about 90-day terms, and I think Sam Borofsky was a big part of that because another one of his letters— he talks about offering 90-day terms. But according to Bruce Lowry, and remember Bruce Lowry was in charge of sales, he is remembering this at that point a little under 30 years after the fact. So he could be wrong, but he doesn't remember them ever going around and explicitly offering to take back any unsold inventory. I think Chef probably got a little confused. I think what they did is they just, they offered 90-day terms. I think they did it without an explicit money-back guarantee. So they just said, we'll give you the systems, we'll give you the games, we will set up displays for you, we will do all the work of getting everything ready to go. All you have to do is bring it up at the register. We're going to have $2.5 million in advertising, we're going to have TV ads, we're going to have newspaper ads, 
We do all the work. You just give us a little shelf space. You don't have to pay for anything until 90 days have gone by. He says that, you know, it's possible that maybe if they had like a reluctant retailer, they might have said, yeah, don't worry about it. If you have unsold inventory, we'll take care of you. He says they might have done that on a retailer by retailer basis. But according to him, and he was the sales guy, they didn't actually go in with a money back guarantee. They didn't go into every retailer and make their pitch and say, oh, and by the way, if you don't sell it all, we'll take it back after 90 days. Again, I think Chef plays up some of the drama in ways that didn't actually happen. They worked their butts off. They were going like 12 hours a day, seven days a week kind of thing, just knocking on doors and doing demonstrations and building displays and, you know, just working hard, hard, hard. They end up getting it in uh, between 500 and 600 retail outlets in the New York City area. Not just New York City proper, but also New Jersey suburbs and stuff like that. They do the Now You're Playing With Power commercials. It's a success. There's some contradictory information about how successful it was. We know for a fact that Nintendo had about 100,000 systems that they shipped in. Nintendo's own marketing materials after the test launch said that they sold 90,000 systems, that they sold 90% of what they brought to the market. David Sheff, who, remember, did have insider access. He doesn't get all of his facts right all the time, but he was talking to the people at Nintendo. He had full unfettered access to everybody from Arakawa on down, even in Japan to a bunch of people as well. He says they sold about half the units, which would be 50,000. That's a discrepancy of 40,000 units. There are a couple of things that could be going on here. One is that David Chef could be wrong. The other is that it could be the difference between sell-in and sell-through. It could be that Nintendo sold 90,000 units to retailers. And of those 90,000 units, the retailers sold 50,000 to consumers, but agreed to keep the other 40,000 to sell at a later date. And thus, from Nintendo's perspective, they sold them. Nintendo has made a sale when a retailer buys a system. Doesn't matter if a consumer buys the system, as long as that retailer doesn't come back three months later and say, I'm returning your systems, give me a refund, or we never do business again. As long as that doesn't happen, Nintendo has made its sale to the retailer. Oftentimes, we don't know, like even when companies release official figures today, we don't know all the time whether those numbers that they're reporting are sell-in numbers which is sales to retailers, or sell-through numbers, which are sales to consumers. So it's possible both numbers are correct and that they sold in 90,000 units and sold through 50,000 units. It's also possible one or the other are incorrect. I find it hard to believe that Nintendo would lie about their sales figures because when you're trying to gain acceptance for a new product in a hostile market, While you do want to put your best foot forward, you absolutely don't want to be caught in a lie. If your credibility is shot, you're done. So I can't imagine that they out and out lied in their official press materials. And these materials have been preserved. Steve Lynn has a lot of them. We we can see these materials. They claimed after that test market that they sold 90,000 systems. They claimed that to the whole world. And I cannot believe they would lie about that when they are facing an uphill battle to introduce a new product. I don't think there's any chance that Nintendo is wrong 
I think the two possibilities are that David Sheff is wrong because he is wrong on other sales figures in his book as well. He overstates how many uh, dedicated consoles that Nintendo sold in the 70s of their color TV line. So he could just be wrong. Or Nintendo was reporting sell-in figures because that would not be a lie and it would be putting their best foot forward because it's a bigger number, whereas Chef was reporting the actual sell-through. Either way, the test market went fine. If all they sold through was 50,000 as opposed to 90,000, then it might not have been as exciting as Nintendo hoped. But it went fine because the important thing is that even if they only sold the 50,000, nobody was coming back to them and saying, take your stock back. We want out of this. Even the retailers that didn't sell everything figured it sold well enough. They were happy. They knew Nintendo was going to keep supporting it. They were fine with it. Really, you have to keep in mind that even if they sold 50,000 of that 100,000 units that they brought there, you're dealing with a hostile consumer base that is hostile against video games, and you're trying to get them to like it. Remember, we said before, in PC games and in arcade games, 50,000 sales is over the moon. Absolutely. So if we're saying that consoles are truly and utterly from scratch, we are not dealing with an established market anymore. We're doing this from scratch. 50,000 units would be over the moon because compare that to the other two industries, that's really good. Exactly. You know, and that's just the hardware sales. We don't have numbers for their software sales. Obviously, they also sold some number of units of those 15 games that they brought with them. 17 total games, but two were pack-in, 15 sold separately. They were pleased. Toys R Us was pleased. Toys R Us, once again, was beating down their doors saying, we got to go national, we got to go national, we got to go national. Nintendo didn't right away because, quite frankly, they couldn't get enough systems together to go national. They did a second test market in the L.A. area. That test market went even better than the New York market. They got more press on it. As Gail Tilden told me, because she was in charge of press relations, they tried to get press for the launch in New York, and it was just impossible. Nobody wanted to talk to them. By the L.A. market, because now they had word of their successful test in New York, by the L.A. market, they were able to get more press coverage. So the L.A. test goes very well in the early part of the year. They start rolling out to more and more places. They go a city at a time through the first half of the year. Then by the end of the year, they're rolled out nationwide with additional games that we talked about, like Mock Rider and Balloon Fight and Mario Brothers and whatnot. You know, there's more we could say about that, but really, we'll just end that by saying the rest is history because our point is to do this 85 test market, and we've done that. They went into the toughest retail market in the United States with a product in a category that was considered completely dead through a combination of fantastic games, which they were, great connections in the region through people like Sam Borofsky, and just true grit, work in the street, building displays, talking to retailers, doing mall demonstrations, just constant, never-ending working for three months straight. They managed to do just well enough, whether it was 50,000, 90,000, whatever, they managed to do just well enough that retailers warmed to the idea that, okay, maybe there really is still a market for video games. From there, the, the industry just grew and grew out of that little Christmas miracle. I want you to imagine, kids, cast your minds back. Imagine you're in the 80s, walking down New York. It's snowing. You see Christmas lights. 
You see snow everywhere. It's pouring down. It looks beautiful. You're wrapped up. And you look off to your right and you see a row of robs rotating back and forth, almost <laughs> in time with a Christmas carol that you hear being played loudly nearby as little kids run into the store to play that Nintendo thing. Exactly. Great picture, Jeff. And. You know, obviously, we don't want to over-mythologize Nintendo too much. They were also there in the right place at the right time. We talked about this before, but 1985 was also kind of the year when the glut was finally cleared out. It took two years to clear out all of that backlog of inventory. Nintendo was also there at the right time to take advantage of the fact that the market was finally ready to accept new product again. We don't know exactly what the market was in 1985, I say that, I know some people that have looked into this a little bit will immediately jump up and say, yes, we do, it was $100 million. In other words, only $100 million worth of video game hardware and software was sold, as opposed to 1983 when $3.2 billion were sold. While that $100 million figure is probably wrong, it seems to have been created after the fact by Nintendo, which, starting in about 1987 love when they were reporting on how they had revived the entire market, love to say the market fell from $3.2 billion to $100 million and then we brought it back. I don't know how they got that figure. They probably tried to do their own research. The fact of the matter is nobody tracked the video game industry in 1985. It had become so small that the industry organizations and media organizations that had traditionally tracked video game sales just did not that year. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, and myself went back through some of the news reports from the time, from the actual 1985-1986 time period, before Nintendo started making its claims. Near as we can tell, it was probably closer to $200 million. It's all estimates, but just going off of what newspaper articles at the time says, it seems like it was probably $200 million, and that there were probably about a million consoles sold and about 20 million cartridges sold. Even if it's $200 million instead of $100 million. This was a market that went from $3.2 billion in sales just two years before, down to somewhere between $100 and $200 million. Okay, so you're talking about a market that dropped down to about 6%, a little over 6% of what it originally was. That's a reduction of nearly 94 to 95%. In two years. Nintendo really did bring it back. They were at the right place at the right time, like I said. It's not that Nintendo did it just by sheer force of will, because the market was ready again. The arcade had recovered already the year before, so the coin-op hits were in the consciousness again. The glut of inventory from 1983 had finally moved through the channel, so we don't want to make it sound like Nintendo did this all by itself. Market forces also helped them. But there's no doubt that they faced incredible resistance and that they were as instrumental as anybody at bringing it back, and that that New York test market was really an incredible success against uh, quite heavy odds. Don't want to play too much into the legend, but at the same time, you, you have to step back and admire that, and especially since it was, it's a good Christmas story, this, this was definitely the time to tell it. Alex and I both hope you all have a wonderful, happy, healthy fun as much as you can time with friends family and a great holiday season of course we don't like to shill too often on the show but uh if as you're listening to this on december 15th and you've suddenly realized oh crud i still have christmas shopping to do 
I will remind you that I do have a book that I wrote. They Create Worlds, Volume 1, the story of the people and the companies that created the video game industry, that shaped the video game industry. I should know the title of my own book. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, that's available from the publisher, CRC Press, and uh, major retailers. It's definitely an expensive book, but Christmas is the time of giving. And if there is a special uh, video game history enthusiast in your life, you may keep us in mind. Just have to throw that out there. Other than that, absolutely, I, I echo what Jeffrey said. We uh, wish you a happy holidays. Uh, find what joy you can in these unusual times, and hopefully, our our podcasts and our our many other past episodes can at least help bring uh, a little bit of of light into this time period. As we celebrate the end of one year, that I'm sure most of us are like, I'm about done with this thing now. What horror do you want to bring us in the new year, Alex? <laughs> Well, we've talked about a period of time when the video game industry rose from the ashes. I think an appropriate follow-up to that would be a time when the video game industry almost collapsed again. Wait, what? Yes, uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that the video game industry actually almost crashed again in the early 1990s, in the kind of 93, 94, 95 period. We've talked about this before because we've done our console war episode. We've talked about various Sega things and various Nintendo things. But just like we never stopped and did a real in-depth focus on this launch, we haven't done a whole episode kind of dedicated to what was happening in that exact time period. I don't know that it'll be quite as blow-by-blow as this one. There aren't as many great sources to get into to super detail, but there's definitely still enough there to kind of explore what was happening in the video game market in kind of the 93-94 period and how the whole thing came kind of close to going off of the rails, quite frankly, in that time period. Well, it looks like next time in the new year we'll cover the crash that almost was next time on They Create Worlds check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCWpodcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Carol of the Bells is from dlsounds.com. The Holly and the Ivy is from singingbell.com. Have a good holiday, everyone.